Our text this morning is Romans chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. But just for context, let's read starting at verse 15 down through 23. Romans 6, verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness, and the end, everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's pray together and ask the Lord's blessing on his word. Father, we are your people by grace. You've called us by grace. Lord, you have justified us by grace, and you are sanctifying us by grace. Lord, I pray this morning that all of us, your children, would be sanctified by your word. Thank you, Lord, that you sent your Son, the Lord Jesus, to open the way to heaven for all of us. May we walk with him, whether it's in the veil here on earth and with him everlasting in heaven forevermore. Lord, Bless your word this morning to our hearts, we pray. Convict us of our sin and lead us in the way everlasting. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, as you know, we've been working our way through Romans chapter 6, um, slowly but uh, methodically, as Paul lays out these great arguments, really uh, one argument that he builds upon another, um, which is this, that not only have we been justified by grace through faith in Christ, which was really chapters 3 through 5, but we are being sanctified because of the fact that we have been placed into union with Christ supernaturally. We have been grafted into Him as the branches are grafted into the vine, and it is His life that flows through us now, His very life of holiness that is being worked out in us. So Paul, in the first half of chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, is focusing on what God has done for us, the objective reality that we have died to sin. We have died to sin in this sense, died to its reign, dominion, and power over us. Um, that was our condition before Christ. We could not do anything but sin. We were slaves to sin or enslaved to sin. But when Christ died on the cross, in the mind of God, all of his people were there with him on the cross and died with him. We, we died with him, we were buried with him, so that when he was raised from the dead, our Lord Jesus Christ, by the glory of the Father, by his power, 
we also were raised to newness of life. A spiritual raising from the dead where we have been awakened to the fact of the reality that we are sinners, but Christ is a great Savior and Lord, and we take Him as such. And we love Him because He first loved us. In fact, in Romans 5, it says that the love of God is shed abroad. the, The dam has been opened and burst and has flooded our hearts Our innermost man, who we are, our affections, our minds, our wills are now engaged in the love of God. And more so as we grow in grace. So that is the objective truth of what has happened to you. You didn't even realize it, but this is what God has done for you in Christ. And then in verses 15 through 23, Paul says, let's show that that's actually the case now for you. Let's prove it. How do we know that? Well, very simple. We look at the principle, the axiom, which is given in verse 16. This is a self-evident truth that anyone can understand. Don't you know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey? Whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. It's very easy to see who your master is. It's the one you serve. Who the one it is that you listen to and that you Pledge your allegiance by way of your feet, what you do, what, you, what your pattern of life is. Our old pattern of life was one of constant obedience to sin. But the new pattern of life is a break from that. It is a pattern of obedience to righteousness, to the Lord. Not perfect obedience, but certainly a, a new life in Christ. A pattern of obedience, of repenting from sin and walking in faith with Christ. And so last week we looked at verse 18 and we saw that we have been set free from sin. We've been set free from the power of sin. And when that happens, he says, you became slaves of righteousness. That is an instantaneous change. There is no break in time from the moment you were set free from sin until the moment you are now enslaved to righteousness following Christ. In other words, when you accepted Christ as your Savior, He was also your Lord at one and the same time. And we really looked at three points last week to start to understand something of this new slavery, a slavery to righteousness. We looked at um, what we call the seeming paradox of this slavery. How is it that we can be enslaved to righteousness and yet be free at the same time? And what we saw is, Through the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, God has made us new. He has changed our desires, our affections, our longings, so that we now love what God loves. The yoke that we have on us, which is yoked with Christ, and the two of us walking side by side together in this newness of life, is not a heavy yoke. It's not a burden to us who are in Christ. It's light because we love Him. It's only when we don't love him and we are asked to do the impossible that it feels impossibly heavy. We also saw that the profile of slavery involves love to God, love to the righteous one, love to what he loves and hatred of what he hates. uh, Our affections are aligned with his more and more. And then we saw that the purpose of that slavery was not to be set free to become our own masters, but that we would be servants of the living God, that we would come out into the wilderness, so to speak, from Egypt, spiritual Egypt, and serve our God and worship Him. And so we are yoked to Him, but yoked gladly, 
So we are beginning to understand something of this new slavery, a slavery not to sin any longer, but a slavery to righteousness, a slavery to God himself. This week we want to consider this question as we look at some of the characteristics of this new slavery to righteousness. What is this new slavery like? And Paul gives us some very good insights in the text we're going to look at today. And there's really three points I want to um, give as kind of an outline or a structure for today. What does this slavery look like? What's, what, what are its characteristics? The first is this, it produces holiness. We're going to see that in verse 19. It produces holiness. The second is it permits the impossible. And hang with me and you'll see what that means. It permits the impossible in verses 19 and 20. And number three, it gives new perspective on my sin. New perspective on my sin. So, produces holiness, permits the impossible, new perspective on my sin. Let's look at the first thing. It produces holiness. Verse 19, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. Um, Question probably arises in all of your minds. What is Paul talking about? Why is he sort of preempting his statement or the rest of what he has to say by kind of commenting on what he's doing? Why is he saying that he speaks in human terms because of the weakness of their flesh? Well, we have to remember that what Paul is describing in this section is slavery. Slavery is something that the Roman readers would have been very familiar with. Slavery was a very, very much a part of the Roman Empire. In fact, it's estimated that up to about 20% of the total population were slaves in the Roman Empire. So this was a well-understood concept, but it was also a corrupted concept because of the sinfulness of men. Slaves were often transferred from one master to another. Um, Masters were not necessarily good. Many were harsh. Um, Many were inconsiderate. And really, that inconsideration goes both ways. Not only were masters harsh, harsh, but slaves would serve their masters with lip service, but their hearts were far from their masters in terms of love. And so it was a corrupt human institution. It was governed by the weakness of the flesh, slavery. Many abuses of every kind on both sides. And Paul is saying, look, this is not a perfect analogy that I'm giving. Because of the weakness of your flesh, part of which means because of the hardness to understand a spiritual truth with a human analogy that we have and one that's corrupted by sin, I want you to understand something of the new slavery that we've been brought into, but realize that this is a slavery like no other slavery you have ever known. This is not a corrupt institution as you are no doubt used to. See, in this old slavery, he says, just as you presented your members, slaves of uncleanness. Paul is calling us to look back to our past. He's saying, Look, remember, we were all slaves. All people in the world are categorized into two camps in this sense with regard to slavery. You're either a slave of sin or you're a slave of God and righteousness. And if you look back at your past and consider that you were, when you were a slave of sin, what did you do? He says this in verse 13. Don't present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin because you used to do that. That was your former way of life. Stop presenting your members, the components of your self, 
What is that? That is not just your physical body, your eyes and ears and mouth and hands and feet. Don't just stop presenting that, but your mind, your affections, everything that makes you you. Stop presenting those things to sin. And Paul's saying, do you realize what that means? When you were a slave of sin and serving sin, what that actually means is you were slaves of uncleanness. Uncleanness. That's a word that means impurity. The word in the Greek um, has many meanings. There's really two categories of meaning for this word, akatharsia, uncleanness. It refers to physical uncleanness, physical defilement of the flesh, uh, like a disease is to the body. That's a physical uncleanness. There are ritual impurities of various kinds, like coming into contact with the dead was considered uncleanness. Um, Coming into contact with a leper. Sexual immorality, all physical defilements of uncleanness. But it also speaks of another category of uncleanness, and particularly in the New Testament we see this, and it's the category of moral or spiritual uncleanness, moral defilement. And that refers to one's attitudes, a lust, a strong desire for that which is evil. That's the uncleanness that is primarily in view in the New Testament. It goes far beyond the acts of uncleanness to an evil attitude, a motive of an evil heart that's being worked out. It's an uncleanness which defiles the soul by all kinds of evil. So you could say it this way, it's a, a breaking of God's law in attitude. It's an attitude problem. And that is what excludes man from the life of God. Um, Kittle, who is uh, the author or one of the editors of the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, he defines uncleanness in a helpful way. He says it, it, is, it is, quote, an expression of the nature of the unregenerate man whose action is determined by commitment not to God but to natural lust. So it's an expression of the lust of an unregenerate, wicked, evil heart that comes out in a thousand different ways. Listen to the way that our Lord Jesus describes this in Matthew 15, in verse 18, when he says this, But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. It's not what you put into your mouth that defiles you from the outside in. It's actually a problem of corruption within you, in your heart, that then comes out and manifests itself in many forms. It's the heart of man that is desperately wicked and produces all this uncleanness. It's a defilement from within. And Paul is saying, you presented your members, the components of your body, including your faculties, your mind, your emotion, your will, all to this uncleanness which originates in your own evil heart. In other words, you were governed by an evil heart, and it expressed itself in every way through who you are, what you say, think, and do. That uncleanness sometimes is very obvious, isn't it? Very visible. Everyone can see it. It would be things that Peter talks about in 1 Peter 4 when he names a list of uncleanness like drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Those things are pretty obvious as outward forms of visible uncleanness. But uncleanness can also be hidden. It can also be inward. Hidden to men and women visibly, but not hidden to God. God sees all. 
Things like Paul says to the Colossians in Colossians 3 when he says, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. Those things are more subtle. Those things are not always apparent to others. But the Lord sees all uncleanness, and it is an abomination to Him. He hates it. So uncleanness can be obvious or it can be subtle, but the reality is it's something that is true of all of us before Christ. We were all unclean. We were all slaves of uncleanness. Yes, we used to serve sin, but do you realize that that means in God's eyes you were filthy? You served filth? It's like you were in the the muck, in the mire. Sin is described as an unclean thing, as that which is hated by God, detestable. In Joshua 7, it's called the accursed thing. Don't even touch it. It has to be avoided at all cost because it contaminates. It defiles. Paul says that's who you were as slaves of uncleanness. But he doesn't stop there. He adds this. He says, slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. Actually, the Greek says, and to lawlessness, unto lawlessness. So, lawlessness, anomia, without law. Really, the true meaning of antinomianism, this word we've been talking about because the question is raised in chapter 6, verse 1, and in chapter 6, verse 15, by the antinomian opponent to Paul's gospel doctrine, who says, well, we should just sin as much as we want because we have grace. No, the antinomian is one who is unrighteous in his behavior. He breaks God's laws in his deeds. And why does he do that? Because he is unclean. The problem is the attitude starts in a wicked heart and it expresses itself as all kinds of deeds of law-breaking. So the two things always go together, uncleanness and lawlessness. We saw the same idea of pairings in Romans 1.18. Remember when Paul said, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Ungodliness and unrighteousness. Ungodliness is an attitude problem. It's a a lack of fear of the Lord. And unrighteousness is breaking His law. Those who don't fear the Lord have no problem breaking His law. So he says, that was you. Unclean and lawless. And then notice the progression. He says, and to lawlessness, unto lawlessness. To more lawlessness. This is a a concept that Paul really introduced in verse 16 when he says, don't you know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey? Whether, now notice, of sin to death or of obedience to righteousness. Those are the two progressions. One devolves to death, the other increases to righteousness. Sin is, in other words, degenerative. It is a deterioration that ultimately culminates in death. That's its path, its direction. Sin is in the soul like moral anarchy, chaos. Um, It it gets more chaotic as it develops. As, As a sinner practices sin year after year after year, he becomes more and more corrupted by his own sin. Ultimately, 
on the pathway to death. That's why Paul tells the Corinthians, don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Leaven, like that yeast component you would put in bread, which spreads and causes a really nice rise. But in this case, we're talking about sin like leaven that spreads and contaminates. You have to stay away from it because it does that. It devolves. It is degenerative in its nature. And it doesn't matter which host it attaches to. It will destroy you. It will destroy others. If you want to get a a picture in your mind of sin at work, this idea of corruption, just look at the body. Look at our own human bodies and the aging process. What's happening there? That's not a natural process. That's a process that's totally the result of sin. That corruption that we see happening slowly in ourselves is just a picture of what's happening in the soul of the unredeemed. It corrupts the soul until the point when it comes to total death and destruction. So do we understand, brothers and sisters, that lawlessness is a path that leads to death? Right? Conceptually, we understand that. But if we really understand that it's a path of uncleanness and death, why would we ever set our foot on that path? I mean, can we, do we think that we can do so without contaminating ourselves? Without consequence that no harm will come to us if we tread the path just for a short time? What does Scripture have to say about this? Our call to worship this morning. 2 Corinthians 6, 17. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. This is what God says to us. Come out and be separate. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. Don't be fooled into thinking that you can just handle sin and play with it and even in small doses, so to speak. It's a disease that wastes the body. It's like an acid that will rust and corrupt your soul. And frankly, if you enjoy touching sin, if you enjoy dabbling in it and playing with it, that which is unclean, then I can tell you, on the authority of the Word of God, the Lord has not received you, even if you profess to know Him. What's the case for the redeemed, for us who trust in Christ? Our souls are not degenerating because of sin anymore. Our souls have been made new. We have a new soul, a new spirit in Christ. Yes, we are still incarcerated in these bodies that are unredeemed. And those bodies have corruption, but we war against that corruption by the power of the Spirit of God. And His promise to us this morning is you can have victory moment by moment, day by day, as you yield to the Spirit and put the, death, put the flesh to death. That's the good news. But no, we do not want to touch what is unclean, even for the righteous. There are consequences. Look at the life of King David. Many consequences. Though he himself and his spirit was saved, he was justified. No, we want to stay as far away from sin as we can and treat it as the accursed thing. And so Paul is saying, look, just as you presented yourselves previously as slaves to uncleanness and to lawlessness, which was only leading to further corruption. Look what he says now. Even so now. In other words, this is a, a construction where he's saying, in, in the sentence where he's saying, just as you did this before, so now do this. Just as you gave yourself to that lifestyle of licentiousness, lawlessness before, so now give yourself to righteousness and to Christ. In fact, here is the contrast again. 
just as slavery to sin has a progression, which is further corruption, so does slavery to righteousness have a progression. And what's the progression? He says it's holiness. Holiness. It's the word in Greek that means sanctification. Actually, the idea is a purification. A purification of the soul that is happening as we are becoming more and more separated from sin and more like our Savior. In verse 16, we saw that by God's grace, we obeyed unto righteousness. We obeyed to righteousness, which means doing what is right in the sight of God. The idea here is that obedience purifies us. It leads to a further separation from sin and and more resemblance of Christ. In other words, holiness is something, and here's what I want you to remember. Holiness is something that grows. It's not a static state. It is a... Uh, a state that is growing over time in the direction of righteousness. In fact, it must be growing in order to evidence that we are slaves of God at all. So just as certain as you were giving yourself to uncleanness and to lawlessness, so now here's the new command. Present your members slaves to righteousness unto holiness. This new slavery is not degenerative, He is, as a master, not harsh or corrupted by sin. No, there is a glorious purpose that is at work here, and it is holiness in the people of God. You, brothers and sisters, are being led on an upward path, an upward trajectory of increasing purification of your souls and Christ-likeness. And yes, that may be hard to understand because of the weakness of your flesh. That's what Paul is saying in verse 19. You have had harsh masters in the past, but I'm telling you, present yourselves to this new master. He is not harsh. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. When you come to him, he will give you rest in your souls, not just for your justification when you first believed on him, but for your sanctification as you continue to believe on him. And if you've been a master, maybe a harsh master yourself, present yourself to your new master because he's not the kind of master you used to be. He's altogether different. He is kind, lowly, humble in mind, lowly in heart. See, this is the glory of this new slavery. (laughs) It's called slavery, which of course has negative connotations because of the corruption of our flesh. But it's really a freedom, brothers and sisters in Christ. And we are being called by the Holy Spirit to entrust ourselves to this new slavery because he says it is the best freedom you could ever have. And it glorifies God. So the question that we must ask ourselves is this. How do I do do that practically? How do I grow in this holiness that Paul is talking about? Clearly it's a direction, it's a progression. But what can I do to further that holiness? Don't we want to understand that? Well, we saw in verse 13, the beginning of our instruction here. He says that we are to present ourselves first to God and then present our members as weapons, instruments or weapons literally, of righteousness to God. We must first orient ourselves totally to God. And how do we do that? By setting our minds on Him. By turning our attention to Him in our minds. And as we do that, we are yielding our individual members slaves of righteousness, which produces holiness in all our members. What are we saying? In our thinking, in our affections, In our aspirations, our longings, our will, all that begins to be sanctified as we are setting our minds on Christ and His Word. 
Let me give you another practical instruction from Scripture. 2 Corinthians 3.18. Paul says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. And in that context, he's talking about the glory of Jesus Christ. As we look at him, as a man looks intently at himself in a mirror, with that kind of intensity, looking at him, what happens? We are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So there's the progression element. From one degree of glory to another degree of glory, we are being transformed, and it's a work of the Holy Spirit in your life, in your heart. Or as Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5-8, through 8, and I take the um, legacy standard because it is so good with regard to these verses. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence, in your faith supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the full knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. These are a, a, a list of virtues that Peter says not only need to be in you, but need to be increasing to evidence, to give you assurance and others that you are in fact born again, that you are a slave of righteousness truly. Where are these virtues, where are these virtues found? They're found in Jesus Christ. He is our model for these virtues. So look to Him, and as you do, these virtues will increase in your life. Your members will become more sanctified. Or Romans chapter 12, verse 2, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We are called to renew our minds. To renew our minds on what? On the Word of Christ, on the Word of God. And that just means look to Him. And as we look to Him, we are being transformed to be more like Him. So in each of these instances, you can see the progression that's upward toward holiness. And it all happens as a function of looking to Christ in faith. In other words, there's no middle ground here, loved ones. You're either in an upward progression of holiness in your life, or you are still devolving in a downward progression of sin toward death. No one stays still. You're either on the escalator going up or the escalator going down, is what he's saying. So which direction are you moving in this morning? What is the pattern of your life as you assess and, and self-examine, which we are called to do? It's a healthy thing. Paul is instructing us to present our members slaves to righteousness for the purpose of increasing holiness. Why? Is that just a, hey, this is what you ought to do now that you are a Christian? This is something that you need to do, so engage your will in just obeying more. Is that what he's saying? Or is Paul really um, appealing to the new affections that we have received as Christians? See, brothers and sisters, the truth is the Christian road is a hard road. There's many preachers who would have you believe otherwise. They would believe, have you believe that you come to Christ and the road is easy. Your life is much easier, better. The Scripture says the opposite. 
The scripture says the road is hard. Narrow is the gate and difficult is the way, the road that leads to life. In other words, your whole life from the time you accept Christ, receive him, trust in him, are united with him by faith, from that time until he takes you home is a hard road. So what makes it worth walking? I mean, read Pilgrim's Progress and you get some really good visuals of what, the, what it means to walk on a hard road toward the celestial city. Lots of traps, lots of snares, lots of troubles. What makes it worthwhile? Why do we do it? Isn't it the love of Christ that constrains us? That compels us? When Paul says that, that constrains, compels idea, he's talking about language of squeezing. Squeezing in a good way. In contrast to this difficult way which leads to life. The difficult way presses us like grapes. We've got to die to ourselves every day. That doesn't feel good. But when he says the love of Christ constrains us, he's talking about the love of a Savior who has us in his hand and he's pressing us gently into his hand to hold us so that we don't fall out. That's how we are constrained by his love that works toward us and we back to him. So, yes, the road is hard, but we have the greatest resource. We have the love of Christ, which is moving us forward in holiness, knowing that we can't fall out of his hand ultimately. That is encouraging. Our delight is in the Lord, and it is love for him that motivates us to keep going. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Pastor Stan and I love him. He... um, He gives a really helpful example of walking in the Christian life by way of a visual. He says it's it's really like climbing a mountain. And he says, you know, all Christians are ascending the mountain of God. We're marching toward Mount Zion, right? Or on Mount Zion toward the glory that is to be revealed. And as we are marching up this mountain, yes, we fall. That's the sin. We sin. So we fall. But when we fall, we don't automatically tumble down all the way to the bottom of the mountain and start over again. Some people feel like when they sin in the Christian life, they tumble all the way down and and they say, well, I've never been saved at all. The reality is, no, you actually are ascending and you've just fallen in place where you are, but now you repent. You get up by the grace of God and you keep going toward the top, toward the apex. You might be really close to the apex when you fall, but you're not down at the bottom anymore. The unbeliever is down at the bottom. He's never ascended. We are ascending by God's grace. So keep going. Run the race. So the first idea is, again, there is a production of holiness in our lives as a result of this new slavery to righteousness. It makes us more like Christ over time, progressively. The second point is this, it permits the impossible. What do I mean by that? Look at verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Well, anytime Paul starts a sentence with the word for, it's an explanation, an explanatory on what came right before it. So he's explaining verse 19. What does he mean when he says, you were free in regard to righteousness? Free. The word means not enslaved to. You were not bound by. In other words, you were exempt from, not controlled by, not a slave to, to what? To righteousness. In other words, you were altogether out of the realm of righteousness. You were in the kingdom of darkness and sin. 
You had nothing to do with true righteousness, is what he's saying. You weren't controlled by it. You weren't under its jurisdiction. And he says, as a slave of sin, you were unrighteous. You, you were unjustified in your standing before God. You were unrighteous in your lifestyle. You didn't know anything of true righteousness. In fact, the only kind of righteousness you knew something about was self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. Like when Paul is going to tell the Romans in chapter 10, and this is speaking of the Jews, but this can be applied to all unbelievers because all of us are self-righteous apart from Christ. He says this, For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Um, The natural man doesn't submit to the righteousness of God. He's not able to until God opens his heart to see that he needs the righteousness of God in Christ. Because his righteousness is what the Scripture calls filthy rags, refuse, worthless. And that's our best righteousness. No, we don't have any righteousness in God's eyes. That's what he's saying. You were altogether outside the realm of true righteousness. Before Christ, we were under law. In this sense, we were standing on our own merit. We weren't standing on the righteousness of Christ. We were standing on our own two feet, which is an absolute foolish thing to do because all of us fall far short of the glory of God, far short of His standard of perfection. We couldn't obey And we didn't want to obey, frankly. That's why we need Jesus for our justification. His righteousness is now counted as our righteousness. We now have standing with him legally in the courtroom of God. But he doesn't stop there. We also need his sanctification. His righteousness that is worked out in our lives in practice to become more like him. See, salvation is a package. He has not only declared us clean, but he has cleansed us and is cleansing us from within by virtue of being united to his life. His righteous life is now being worked out in us. So God's law has never changed. The standard is always perfection. It will always be perfection. What has changed? We've changed. We've changed. We now have a heart, a new heart, that is able and wants to, by the power of the Holy Spirit working in this new heart, obey the Lord. So what's Paul saying in verse 20? He's saying, you were slaves of sin. You were not able to demonstrate any real righteousness. You were totally free of it in that sense. And so what's the implication? But now you can. Now you can. This new slavery permits what's impossible. And you are now able to do what? The end of verse 19. Present your members as slaves to righteousness unto holiness. Because you're now in the realm of righteousness. You're in Christ who is the righteous one. You can do this. So this new slavery produces holiness. It permits the impossible. And then lastly, it gives new perspective on my sin. On our sin. Look at verse 21. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Paul is still looking to the past. He's still saying, consider your past. And who's he talking to? What fruit did you have? He's talking to Christians. Fruit, sometimes translated benefit, profit. But really, fruit is the best translation here because he's going to be talking more about fruitfulness in chapter 7 when we are to understand 
that we're married to Christ. And the product of that union is fruit. It's good fruit unto God. So stay with the idea of fruitfulness here. What fruit did you have then in those things of which you are now ashamed? Well, perhaps Paul's using a bit of sarcasm here, right? What fruit did you have when you were, when you were quote unquote, free from righteousness and enslaved to sin? Is there anything good that came from that? Any good product that you can think of? What's your perspective now, Christian, looking back on your former life? Of the things which he says, of which you are now ashamed. Ashamed. We don't glory in our former life, in the sin of our former life, right? We are ashamed of it. And he uses a really strong form for this word shame. Uh, Shame meaning disfigurement of face, literally. So he's saying very ashamed. You are now very ashamed when you think of the fruit, quote-unquote, of your previous life. Brothers and sisters, what is shame? Shame is a consequence of sin. You remember back in the garden? We first read about shame with Adam and Eve. When they ate of the fruit that they were expressly told not to, they became aware that they were naked, and it was never a problem to that point. But then they became ashamed. The light of God's truth exposed their sin, and they were naked and ashamed of it. And of course, you remember, they tried to deal with their own problem by sowing fig leaves for themselves. Really a picture of what all the world has tried to do ever since to deal with that shame, to quiet the shame and the guilt. They sow fig leaves, which are totally inappropriate. They, they don't last. They're not um, the right material for what the purpose is. They had to be clothed with animal skins that God provided. That's a picture of the Lamb of God to come in Christ covering their sin and their shame. So what is this shame? Well, it is a knowledge that we have sinned. But before we were converted, we loved our sin. We loved our sin. We, when we looked at it, we saw its attractiveness, didn't we? I mean, sure, we, we may have understood that there was a cost to partaking of the sin, but in our spiritual drunkenness, we didn't mind. We, we partook and we didn't care. Um, Thomas Brooks, who was one of the Puritans and who wrote um, on Satan's devices, he, he wrote this really interesting insight um, of how Satan tries to deceive us. He says, Satan is very good at presenting the bait and hiding the hook. He's good at presenting the bait and hiding the hook. What's the bait? Well, the bait is <clears throat> sin. But he makes it look attractive. He makes it look like something that we should want. But really inside the sin, what's not seen to the eye is this hook which represents death. And so we get hooked because we are not discerning that the bait is actually sin. And it's to be avoided. It's the unclean thing. Christians ought to be ashamed of the fruit of their old lives. In fact, this is a very good evidence of what it means to be a true slave of righteousness, to be saved. You don't glory in your former life. Those who glory in the sin they used to commit, they still don't know Christ. They're still showing that they're enslaved to their sin because they love it. Now, what were the products of our life when we were in a state of slavery to sin? Um, It's ugly, right? I mean, Paul lists this in Galatians 5, 19 through 21, the works of the flesh. 
He says, the works of the flesh are evident. Here they are. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, that's strife, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, which are factions, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, which is carousing, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, the works of the flesh are bad fruit. And guess where bad fruit comes from? Bad trees. Evil hearts. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, our Lord said. That's a stern warning. What is the fruit or benefit of sin when it only leads to death? And death leads to eternal judgment, hell. There's no benefit at all. None. Only the Christian can recognize this, though. They see that the the fruit of their old life is sin and they hate it. We have a new perspective on sin, don't we? And this, this view of our sin is intensifying, isn't it? We're becoming more sensitive to our sin as we grow in grace. This is the paradox of the Christian life, or one of many paradoxes. People will say, I don't feel holy. In fact, I see more of my sin now than I ever did before. What's happening there? That's actually an evidence that you're being sanctified. The Spirit of God is revealing sin more and more in your life, so you're becoming sensitive to it. Um, You may feel worse because of it, but actually, it's an evidence that you're growing in grace. You know, we've used this analogy before, I think, but I think it's helpful. When we first start in the Christian life, it's easy to identify the big things that are sin, right? The boulders, if you will. But then as we grow in grace, we see rocks and pebbles and tiny pebbles, and pretty soon it's dust. I'm covered in dust. Lord, help me. Cleanse me. What does all that do? It drives us to the Savior more and more, doesn't it? It makes us appreciate the great salvation that we have in Christ. He becomes sweeter to us as we grow in this grace because we see that He's a great Savior delivering us from all our sin. It was there all along. We just weren't aware of it to that extent. It's a work of grace in the heart. J.C. Ryle, um, I put his quote in the bulletin this morning. The beginning of his quote says this, When I speak of man growing in grace, I mean simply this, that his sense of sin is becoming deeper. That's an evidence that you're growing in grace. Your sense of sin is becoming deeper. You know, in Ezekiel chapter 36, when God had described how he would save his people by bringing them out of foreign lands and bringing them into their own land, washing them, giving them a new heart, taking out their heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh, giving them a new spirit and giving them the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. He says he will bless his people with fruitfulness. And then he says this very interesting thing in Ezekiel 36, 31 and 32. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves in your own sight. That means hate yourselves. For your iniquities and your abominations. Not for your sake do I do this, says the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. 
There is a shame that God intends to produce in us when we look back on our sinfulness because it drives us away from our sin. It is a deterrent. We don't love shame, do we? No. Be ashamed and confounded for those works and turn to Christ. And a heart will turn to Christ in gratitude after that to say, God, thank you that you saved me from that. Jeremiah expressed the same shame. He said in his uh, writing, Jeremiah 31, verse 19, I was ashamed, yes, even humiliated, because I bore the reproach of my youth. When I looked at my past, the fruit of that life, (laughs) I can only think of shame and humiliation. So we hate our sin. We hate our shame, and we feel that shame of our former lives. It is an evidence that we are growing in grace. It's a new perspective that we have on our sin. We have what Scripture calls a godly sorrow for sin, a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. There's another type of sorrow that is not a godly sorrow that doesn't lead to repentance. It's the kind of sorrow that says, I'm sorry that I got caught, but then it continues in its old pattern of life. But godly sorrow leads to repentance. It produces repentance, in fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So, Paul is saying, look, you've considered the past. Now I want you to turn your attention to the future. What does sin look like in the future? For the end of those things is death. Death. Telos, the final state, the end. In other words, all those bad fruits of our former life, all the uncleanness and the lawlessness that used to define our lives before God, all of that leads to death Separation from God. Not just a separation of the body from the spirit and physical death, but an eternal death, a damnation by God where His wrath abides on us forever, separated from Him, experiencing His full wrath for our sin. that That is the fate of the unbeliever, the wicked man, but not us in Christ. Thank God. The writer of the prayer that Pastor Stan read this morning in Valley of Vision, he knew something about the way of sin leading to death, didn't he? He described his pathway as one of loving self and serving self, living for self. That is the way of death. Living for our own pleasures, our own delights, apart from God, it's death. may not look like death right now. Satan presents the bait, but he hides the hook. It leads to death. No, he recognized that our greatest joy, the greatest joy possible is to glorify God and to live for his pleasure, to delight in him. That's it. And the wicked are not concerned with their end. Do you notice how Paul is having us consider the past and the future? That's very interesting. The wicked do not do that. What does the wicked say? Well, as in the parable in the New Testament that Jesus gives above the rich fool, The rich fool says this, soul, speaking to himself, himself, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. There's no need to be concerned with any kind of end. Just live for today and enjoy it. And presuming you're going to have many years because you have much goods laid up for yourself. The psalmist Asaph 
In Psalm 73, we read this morning, he almost fell into that same trap, didn't he? Um, Thinking that the wicked have some virtue in life because they prosper, materially prosper, so they have some virtue. He says that, in fact, that he misjudged the tragedy of the wicked. He was only looking at their present circumstances. In Psalm 73, verse 2, But as for me, Asaph speaking, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. Why? For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He says in verse 4, There are no pains in their death, but their strength is firm. They may go to the grave with full strength, thinking that everything's just fine. They're not concerned about the future of their soul. They're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men, he says. And then in verse 12, Behold, these are the ungodly, who are always at ease. They increase in riches. But then, what does he say? (laughs) He says, But then I came into the sanctuary of my God, and I considered their end. I considered the end of the ungodly. Their telos, their ending point. What was that? Surely you, Lord, set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. In other words, when God brings his judgment upon the wicked, it is going to be instantaneous and is going to be totally destructive. No remedy at all at that time. And he says, how could I have fallen into such a a foolish trap to think that there was something desirable about material prosperity when the end of that lifestyle of sin leads to an eternity of death? Who cares if I have 80 years or 100 years of pleasure here on earth when I have an eternity of misery to follow? I was so foolish and ignorant, I was like a beast before you, like someone with with no understanding, like an animal. Hmm. But here's the grace of God. He brings him to this understanding, and he brings us to this understanding, brothers and sisters. Nevertheless, verse 23, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none on on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The road is hard. It's dangerous. It's fraught with all kinds of snares and traps. It's not for the faint of heart. But take heart in this. The Lord is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He is with us. He's got us in his hand and he will never let us go. Praise God. Brother or sister, are you someone who is worried about your end? Do you think about your eternal soul, the destination of your eternal soul? That's not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing. I mean, it's, it's the righteous who've been pricked in their conscience by the Lord to think about these things. The wicked do not consider these things life beyond the grave. It's the slave of God who is called to think often about both our past and the future, right? We see this many times in this passage in Romans 6. Look to the past. Just as you presented your members, dot, 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 in time past. For when you were slaves of sin, dot, 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 what fruit did you have then in those things of which you are now ashamed? Looking to the past. But now, don't stay there. 
That's an opportunity for glorying in God because look what He's done to change us. He's brought us out from that darkness and now we're in light. We now love what is good, truly good, and we hate what is evil. But we also look forward in two ways. We see here's what the end of a godless life looks like. Asaph, right? God help us to, to, to have a compassion for those all around us who are dying, who are on a road to eternal destruction. Lord, give us compassionate hearts to share this gospel of good news because we know the end of the ungodly. But we also know the end of glory for all who trust in Christ. Paul's going to get to this next when he talks about a fruit that's produced in us that is a good fruit. Not a fruit of unrighteousness that leads to death, but a fruit which is to holiness, which leads to everlasting life. We're going to get to that next time, Lord willing. So what are these characteristics of this new slavery to righteousness? It produces holiness. It produces more Christ-likeness in us. It must it permits the impossible. It now enables us to present our members as instruments of righteousness to God because we are in the realm of righteousness. We are in Christ, enabled by His Spirit to do the impossible. And it gives me and all of us new perspective, doesn't it, on our sin. It helps us to see that we, in fact, have been made new because we are ashamed of our former life and we want nothing to do with it anymore. It is the unclean thing. We stay away from it. God, help us to stay away from it. Help us to have discernment, to recognize the bait when it has a hook inside of it. Let's pray.